Welcome to Ag Future presented by Alltech. Join us from the 2022 Alltech One Conference as we explore opportunities within agri-food, business, and beyond. With more than 40 million Americans currently suffering from food insecurity and with an estimated 9 billion people to feed around the globe by 2050, we need deliverable answers to questions of hunger, and we need them now. How can the science of neurogastronomy, the relatively new science of how our brains taste food, move us toward a goal of global food security? I'm Tom Martin for the Alltech Ag Future podcast, and with me is Dr. Dan Hahn, chief of the Division of Neuropsychology at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. Dr. Hahn is a fellow of the American Neurological Association, a co-founder and past president of the International Society of Neurogastronomy at UK. He has received federal and state funding and foundation grants in support of clinical trials of studies on brain behavior relationships, curriculum development, and program development. Dr. Hahn's work in translational neuroscience has been featured in Newsweek, National Geographic, The Wall Street Journal, on the BBC and CBC, The Atlantic, HuffPost, Business Insider, New Scientist, Stat, Brain World, Alive Magazine, The ASCO Post, and the American Psychological Association's Monitor on Psychology. Welcome, Dr. Hahn. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The fact that our experiences with food are related to neurology hadn't occurred to me before, but it seems to make a great deal of sense when you think about it, and you kind of wonder why we didn't think about it much earlier. But the the term neurogastronomy didn't appear until it was coined by Dr. Gordon Shepard, I believe, of uh, Yale, and he was first writing about the concept in the journal Nature in 2006. Uh, why did it not become a focus of formal scientific inquiry until so very recently? Oh, good question. Um, so the, the concepts and mechanisms and foundations were there for decades, uh, if not uh, centuries, actually. Um, the movement to translate what we know uh, in the context of neurosciences and um, individual perception and psychology and how that shapes an individual um, uh, desire for food consumption and what that means for macro level agricultural technology and consumerism and so on. As a movement, it hasn't been conceptualized until uh, relatively recently, about 2015 or so. Uh, Dr. Gordon Shepard at Yale conceptualized the term and coined the term and published it in Nature uh, years back. And the challenge was set for the scientists and clinicians and uh, other academics uh, by Dr. Gordon Shepard uh, to come out of the silos and actually talk to each other and educate each other and have um, a larger optic optics um, uh, to look at uh, some tangible questions that are needing to be asked and answered uh, relatively quickly because we have 9 to 10 billion people to feed by 2050. The International Society of Neurogastronomy, which uh, you have served as president of, is based at the University of Kentucky. Why UK? It's just, it's a, the concept was born out of Yale University, but... There were many academic clinicians and bench scientists at the University of Kentucky uh, who 
out of serendipity, uh, decided to form a group and um, answer that call. And um, uh, the story actually goes back to 2012 when the book first came out. Uh, Dr. Gordon Shepard, um, who coined the term, uh, wrote the book uh, called Neurogastronomy, and it was published in 2012, which was which happened to be the year uh, when I was in Montreal uh, for a neuroscience conference. And um, uh, the story is actually quite interesting. And, and I'll, I'll get into it um, um, as a late topic. Okay, okay so um, Gina Mullen, who was um, working with me at the time at UK Healthcare, uh, she was my staff support, and we worked together on um, getting um, flights and so on. And um, she she was in charge of making sure that uh, my conference travel itinerary was set in place uh, at that at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, server went down, so uh, you know I'm I'm not terribly computer savvy, so I was trying to pick her brain. Uh, and try to uh, set up, uh, you know, the hotel and flight, et cetera. And um, I also asked around among my uh, foodies, you know, uh-huh. uh, in town. Um, I asked them, you know, okay, I'll, I'll be in Montreal for a few days. You know, what is the restaurant to go visit? And everybody told me to go uh, visit uh, Joe Beef in Montreal. That's where the chefs hang out. And uh, that same year, uh, Anthony Bourdain did a special on the Travel Network uh, and featured Joe Beef as the restaurant to go visit when you're in Montreal. So we figure, all right, let's go ahead and put that on the calendar. And Gina Mullen uh, helped me put that on the calendar. But at that time, uh, server went down, internet got cut off, and we didn't know if the uh, reservation took. But we were in Montreal. We figure, all right, let's just, you know, go and see if the reservation took. So we went to Joe Beef, and then, um, of course, the reservation didn't take, you know, I mean, Murphy's Law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I was there with uh, some of my academic colleagues who uh, we were there for a neuroscience conference, and we figured, well, you know, how often do we come to Montreal and visit a restaurant like Joe Beef? So we waited, and then we got sat late, about 9.30 p.m., I believe, okay? But because of that serendipity, um, we ate late, and then things were starting to uh, wind down in the restaurant, and that's when uh, Fred Morin, inter Fred Morin, uh, chef, uh, chef extraordinaire <laughs> and uh, world-renowned chef, um, decided to come out of the kitchen uh, with a bottle of wine in his hand, um, and decided to make the rounds, saying hello to the patrons. And then he saw us uh, at the corner, and he immediately said, well, obviously, you guys are not from around here. <laughs> you guys have <laughs> lanyards and everything. You look like dorks. <laughs> and uh, we said, yeah, you know, we're here for a neuroscience conference, right? And then he invites himself down and actually brings out some uh, additional wine and champagne and some more dorks on the house. And he said, well, you know, I just read this book called neurogastronomy. Uh, I'd love to pick your brain since you guys are neuroscientists. And then um, uh, he sat down and you know, lo and behold, uh, it turned out he was a, 
a bioengineer by training before he got into culinary arts. And um, uh, we started sparking up a conversation. And, um, you know, thanks to uh, being lubricated with wine, um, uh, he, he said, uh, you know, Doc, if you could get some scientists, uh, legitimate scientists and doctors together, I could get chefs, sommeliers, distillers um, and of that ilk, and then we should have a meeting of the minds because um, that's what Gordon Shepard in the book actually called for. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was quite intriguing to me. Uh, and I said, of course, yes, you know, let's do it. But I didn't really think too much about it. I thought it was just one of those dinner conversations. And then, you know, um, you know I came back to Kentucky and then, you know, I didn't really think too much about it. Uh, and then uh, it was a cool enough story that I decided, you know, talking to my other colleagues, uh, Brett Smith, who was a, um, who's no longer at University of Kentucky, but he was the uh, former chair of the Department of Neuroscience. And I told him about uh, what had happened in Montreal. And he said, oh, you know, uh, Tim McClintock, who's a physiologist, who's a, a smell physiologist, um, and a nationally renowned scientist who's at University of Kentucky, um, actually did his fellowship training at Yale and knows Gordon. So Tim McClintock and I met and sat down and ha- started having uh, our discussions. And then I told him about what had happened in Montreal. And uh, immediately he said, well, okay, well, let's call Gordon Shepard. Huh. Yeah. Next thing you know, uh, Dr. Gordon Shepard um, not only um, gave us his blessing, um, he uh, volunteered generously to mentor the whole process to uh, initiate a movement uh, uh, on international society. Um, Because for your audience, uh, Dr. Gordon Shepard is a uh, internationally renowned neuroscientist, a living legend with nine seminal textbooks in the field. So it was an honor for us to really take up the mantle and answer the challenge. But uh, it's written in history. University of Kentucky um, is where the movement was birthed uh, with all these different scientists, chefs, uh, culinary artists, um, food technologists and agricultural scientists uh, coming together out of their silos to um, ask the right questions and uh, try to come up with an answer for global health, hunger, and feeding 10 billion people by 2050. Sometimes messed up reservations can lead to big things, can't they? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, well, let's get down into the science here uh, for our audience. And uh, I'm wondering what factors, such as dimming lights or adjusting music or even saying grace at dinner, uh, can influence our perceptions of food and help us digest food even better? So um, flavor perception is a truly multi um, dimensional experience. It's just something that we don't think about uh, because um, it's one of the most complicated uh, sensory processing uh, mechanisms that we know of. Uh, in fact, because um, you know the evolutionary process has dictated that you know you don't have to waste too much 
uh, calories in your thinking process to, to uh, how all this works every time you eat. You know, otherwise we'll be burning off the calories that we'll be consuming, right? So it's incredibly complicated, but seldom do we actually pause and think about the mechanism. Smell, taste, uh, flavor. I mean, smell and taste constitute flavor, but the entire experience also uh, draws from sight and other senses like texture, uh, sound, um, and they all connect to your long-term uh, stored memory uh, and reward circuits of the brain and so on. And there's aspects of anticipation before you actually uh, bite into your first piece of steak and so on. Um, all of that have been studied in independent silos for a long time. Um, and industry has done a marvelous job, actually, uh, looking at what creates the perfect crisp for a, a potato chip mm -hmm. um, or, you know, what uh, lighting or what decibel makes the perfect ambience for uh, umami flavors, um, for a steak dinner with red wine and so on. But what we're trying to do is to identify all those variables and uh, come up with ways to, uh, I don't want to say manipulate them, but actually modulate them and use them so that we're not just merely using them for consumerism, but to expand that concept to modulate the brain to want to eat and then desire flavors that come from smaller carbon footprint ingredients and um, create that demand for the masses so that we could actually have an efficient way of delivering food and nutrients for, again, 10 billion people. Okay, there's a lot to unpack yes. in, the, in that uh, response, and I want to get to the, the latter part of it soon. But first, uh, just to kind of focus on one of these elements, um, there have been several studies that have shown that perceptions of sweet and salty can be skewed by noise, by sound. Any idea how sound can affect our sense of taste? Yes. So um, let me give you the macro version first. Okay. So there is a phenomenon called a synesthetic experience, and we all have it. If I show you, if I show you a pic picture of red jagged edges, you're more likely to call that kiki than mubu. And again, the word kiki and mubu are just made up words. Okay, They hold no intrinsic meaning behind them. But your brain is already wired, and this is cross-cultural. We could do this in Asia, we could do this in Africa, we could do this in Europe, we could do this anywhere. Um, your brain's already wired to draw from the references that's already networked in um, and from genetic memory. Uh, even before you had your own frame of references, um, just what the species have actually uh, packed into our evolution. So when you're thinking something jagged, we're thinking, uh, we're drawing from the library in the brain that is associated with something uh, a little more uh, sharp as a consonant and so on. Uh, and then 
uh, with with something more like a cloud-like, fluffy uh, visual. Uh, your brain is drawing from uh, more uh, uh, smooth-sounding uh, vowels and so on. So imagine for a moment how complicated that network is. And we just you know, take it for granted and we don't think about it. Now, that same principle applies to other senses. So uh, sound, decibel, depending on what kind of sound it is and so on, that's going to actually draw from the referential library in your brain uh, and affect sense of other senses, including smell and taste. So finally, there is a science behind why my wife loves coconut, but I don't. Uh, it's not about taste for me. It's the texture. Mm -hmm. Coconut is coconut. Mm -hmm. Yet we have these completely differing perceptions of it. How come? Yes. Um, so that's what makes the field quite exciting mm -hmm. because everybody has their own unique subjective referential library in the brain. And that can be influenced and modulated by your own personal experience. Um, and, uh, you know, on one extreme end of the uh, spectrum, you have taste aversions. You know, um, you could have something that you enjoy quite a bit, but if you have too much of it, you'll get sick of it. Um, and that will be your personal and unique subjective experience. That's going to have um, a lasting change documented in your brain's library. And afterwards, it, it could be coconut for you. It could be pork and beans for others and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, and the next thing you know, your brain is wired to create aversive reactions for that stimulus, even in the future. So for me, it's pork and beans. If I smell it, you know, uh, 20 yards away, I'll start feeling it in my stomach. Um, and, 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 uh, uh, funny part of that is that that occurred after when I was a preteen, um, I, I used to very much enjoy pork and beans and then I had a gallon of it by myself and I got sick <laughs> and threw up. <laughs> um, and that, that was the, uh, that was the referential library <laughs> deposit, if I may, uh, that was the impetus for. Uh, this taste aversion for the rest of my life. Well, you know, uh, I had uh, uh, pneumonia as a as a child, and I loved pickles up until then. But for some reason, the illness made me have an aversion to pickles, and that lasted for years. And I finally overcame it after I, uh, later years in a, as an adult. Uh, but is that is that common? Yes, um, it's actually quite quite common. Um, and it has nothing to do with pickles. I mean, it could be right. any kind of food. Um, mm -hmm. So these taste aversions can occur um, as the experience is correlated in your brain uh, with um, you know, something uh, that you used to enjoy. And then next thing you know, your brain has this referential library of that entire experience being something awful, right? Now, fortunately, they can also go extinct. Meaning, uh, after some time passes and that matching reference is not continuously reinforced over time, then your brain does become 
more forgiving hmm. to that stimulus. So if you haven't had uh, an aversive reaction to pickles and haven't had pneumonia for some time, it could ease your way back into some artisanal pickles uh, <laughs> a little bit at a time and then uh, uh, you know, enjoy the experience again, especially if you reinforce it with positive experiences. Right, right. Yeah. How can the, the principles of uh, neurogastronomy guide the design of experiences that encourage us to eat more fruits and vegetables, for example, and fewer high-sugar, high-sodium foods? Well, that's a very complicated question because not all fruits and vegetables are actually good for you. So um, there's a lot to unpack there, right? So uh, the, the principle of neurogastronomy really matches all other principles of biological sciences. Everything in moderation. Um, there's a Goldilocks zone for all of this. Um, there's a way to uh, maintain homeostasis for any biological entities. Too much of anything is actually no good for you, uh, especially when it's at the expense of other balanced nutritious diet uh, intake, and too little of anything is not good for you. Now, in North American culture, culture over the years has driven to excess of certain types of ingredients. Um, for an example, if, we, uh, if there's a consumer demand for sugar, then agriculture technology is going to meet that demand by providing sugar. It's a very, very simple economic principle, right? But what we're trying to do is come up with modulating effects for the brain so that the brain desires just the right amount of sugar, but also desires other ingredients that are healthy and um, with smaller carbon footprints. And once that desire is set at the individual level, then market will just follow. Mm. And big ag and agricultural technology and food technology will just follow that trend and that demand. So to your initial question about how do we get people to eat more fruits and veggies? Well, um, there are a lot of tricks, uh, tricks of the trade to uh, foster that and then promote that. But I'll throw back this question to that question, which is, well, um, why are we not thinking about coming up with ways to actually permanently change the habits of the individual so that we don't have to ask those questions? Ah. Mm -hmm. So that's the principle behind neurogastronomy. Okay. Bringing it around to the subject of, of hunger and, and uh, global food security, uh, and I'm going to begin this part of our conversation in a kind of a novel way, but it's something that's come up during our conversations here uh, at the Alltech One Conference. There is this emerging industry in farming certain types of insects as a potentially important source of protein supplements for human food. We humans, however, tend to almost universally loathe the very idea of eating bugs. These would be ground into a powder. They'd be mixed in with some sort of more widely acceptable Trojan horse, let's say, to get beyond that aversion. But 
In following up on what you just said, can we trick our brains into enjoying a food that we have not liked? How, how can neurogastronomy play a role in making insect meal acceptable to humans as a source of nutrition? Excellent question. I'll start off by uh, saying that one of the assumed variables behind that questions, uh, question is wrong. So humans do not hate bugs by design to begin with. It's very culture specific. Um, you can go to other parts of the world and eating bugs is just a base rate. It's a baseline phenomenon. It's not thought of as an alternative source of fuel that you just kind of make do. Rather, it's something that is actually sought out. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'll actually pose this uh, as a question to derive at the answer. So I love cheese. I, I'm a sucker for cheese. Give me Gouda, you know, some Brie, you know, what have you, you know, it, it's, you know, I'm a sucker for all sorts of cheese. My wife is not. Okay. Now, if you take the umami and you know, the savory, salty, addictive flavor out of the referential library that I talked about from your brain, if you just purely logically think about what cheese really is, it's pretty gross, actually, if you think about it. <laughs> Nobody thinks about it in uh, Western culture, uh -huh. as an example, because it's something that we've been saturated with. I mean, you don't think about the process. You don't think about the mechanism. You, you just, you don't question it. You, you taste it and then realize, oh, you know, I like the savory experience, you know, and then you get to a point where you crave for it, right? So let me actually provide reason behind that before we even unpack this. If we could get an entire culture for hundreds of years, if not thousands, to not ask the question about the entire process of making cheese, which is taking lactation from a different species and making sure it rots. <laughs> and then later trying to see if you could salvage it by eating it. <laughs> if you could have an entire uh, um, part of the species not questioning that and actually craving that process, you could do the exact same for bugs. You know, you almost want to ask, <laughs> what is wrong with us anyway? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, uh, and first of all, I... Um, Mia culpa. I think I am guilty here of a little bit of parochialism and assuming that this aversion to insects was universal. It's probably more of a Western cultural phenomenon. Yes, yes, yes. Um, um, even anecdotally, I don't even have to provide um, uh, cult other cultural references. I could tell you anecdotes. I mean, growing up in South Korea, eating uh, roasted grasshoppers. Uh -huh. uh, was a very common thing. And, um, you know, they if you like nuts, you'll actually very much enjoy roasted grasshoppers. It's a very, very uh, sustainable and uh, rich uh, nutrition-packed source of protein. Um, and uh, there's really no reason why we should shy away from this alternative fuel source that can be a culinary delight. 
most of the talk about food shortages uh, revolves around population growth on that part of the equation. But how can the science of uh, neurogastronomy play a role in moving the world toward greater food security in the years to come? So um, food shortage and population growth ratio, when the average person conceptualizes uh, the problem, uh, so to say, um, it's based on the misunderstanding of the data spread. That ratio is off. So the balance is off. It's not so much that we have too many people. Uh, we have plenty of people, yes, and we're going to have more. But there's also plenty of nutritional sources that's available as is. It's just that that balance is off right now because certain cultures have higher demand for certain specific ingredients. And then again, you know, it's, it's you know, simple economics, right? Um, the demand is always just going to, I mean, supply is going to always find, uh, follow the demand. So again, we have to re-ask the question before we identify the problem. What is the problem? Well, is it truly that we have too many people and growth in the species and not enough uh, food for them? Data actually suggests otherwise. Hmm. It's uh, the imbalance of what we desire and what is available for producing crops and so on. So the question has to be reframed to ask, well, how do we actually regain the balance? And um, I think by coming out of everybody's silos and crossing the aisles, so to say, and then learning from each other and getting better optics and a bird's eye view of what we didn't know uh, could really help all these different fields of sciences come together and uh, come up with an innovative solution, which is what neurogastronomists are doing. We have bench scientists who are working from labs, um, and then we have clinicians like myself uh, who are seeing patients uh, for different sorts of disease. Mine happens to be in a brain disease arena. Um, and then agriculture and food technology scientists in their respective labs. And of course, culinary artists to put all the variables together and actually be able to deliver it to the masses. Because if I prescribe it, then it's a prescription. Nobody's going to follow my regimen. If a lab scientist writes it down, then you know people are going to fall asleep before <laughs> they decided to incorporate it into their uh, eating habits. Um, so we also need the artists to really teach us how to deliver it so that the average person could look at the meal and the uh, concept and the construct and say, ooh, I want to eat that. We just have a little bit of time left, but this is really important, and you touched on it earlier. Um, <clears throat> can this science, this uh, neurogastronomy, help create the desire for ingredients with relatively small carbon footprints and, and thereby impact both global hunger and climate change? So that's our goal. That's, um, that was specifically uh, posed as a query and a challenge by Gordon Shepard himself. And said, so, well, the fundamentals of basic economy 
dictates where science and where food and where agriculture go. Again, the, the principle is uh, predicated on the fact that supply is always going to follow demand. And right now, humanity has created an imbalance in that structure. So the domino effect also occurs. That imbalance has created a monoculture of crop sciences, which is not the fault of the crop scientists at all. I mean, they're just following where the demand is, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it's not a blame game, but the, you know, it's the starting point for this imbalance really starts with the individual's desires. Now, you can't blame humanity for that either because that's baked into our genes. You know, we can't just uh, uh, unbecome who we are. So how do we come up with an innovative way to, and excuse my uh, pun, you know, have our cake and eat it too mm -hmm. for creating a planet of plenty? The presuppositions behind those statements are the following. We do have plenty. How do we make people understand that the power is in the individual to actually access that plenty? And how do we do that psychologically? How do we do that physiologically and the neurobiologically with our genetic memory and so on? So that's a tall order, right? Now, where does um, climate science come in? One could argue that, you know, there's a seven plus billion people that we have in the planet right now and the domino effect that was caused post-industrialization uh, post um, has caused an environmental change that is harmful for our species. And I actually dare to say that climate change is not what the average person thinks of as is. Climate has changed, yes. Life will still continue. It's just bad for our species. We have created a climate that is bad for us. Jellyfish are doing great <laughs> right now. Yeah, they're actually pro proliferating more than ever. There's a, a pretty significant problem that is uh, being posed in a, a sailing and a, a marine life because uh, there's too many uh, jellyfish now. So life will go on. It's just, you know, we created this imbalance for ourselves because our demand for certain ingredients have been met. So again, how do we undo that and recreate that balance? I think, you know, our colleagues would agree with me that by coming out of each uh, field's silos and getting better optics, we can actually address the individual desire at the micro level and then create a demand for crop science supply chain that has the least amount of problematic impact creating high carbon byproducts and then reverse that process and then um, have uh, multiple ways to actually address carbon in the air. Well, I think this conversation has uh, to be continued written all over it because obviously there are the, the research is underway and, and the uh, answers are profound for all of us. So if we may revisit sometime down the road, I'd appreciate it. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you for having me. And then, you know, this is a very passionate 
uh, topic for me. And I think uh, the, the gravity of the importance of what we're trying to achieve here for global health and to establish a planet of plenty. It's, 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 it's an exciting venture, but beyond this excitement, it's... Uh, it's profound. It, yes, it is. It is. Yeah. Dr. Dan Hahn, Chief of the Division of Neuropsychology at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. For the Alltech Ag Future Podcast, I'm Tom Martin. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts.